Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Games Master. Yeah, the original is always better. My name is Ash Rose, your host, your guide to the decade that changed football forever. And we are back. I feel like I want to say that in a Martin Tyler way. Like, we're alive, but we're back. But we are back. It's been a while. Yes, Sorry, I think June was our last episode. And even at that point, we promised you some episodes about on the Euros. Things changed. Um, I won't bore you with the details because, frankly, it is boring. You don't need to know. Essentially, though, we as a podcast moved house. We are no longer associated with, um, with West 12 Productions, who there's no animosity at all. They uh, concentrated on their own thing and we decided to part ways. So for a little while, we were deciding what to do with the show but we are back we're going solo many thanks to everything that west 12 did for us david rich all the guys there who really put this platform in place for the original 1990s football podcast but we're, we're going solo now we're really excited uh, we're we're tweaking the, the platform in terms of how we do episodes um, i'm really hoping we're back on a regular basis that is the plan we've got plans in motion um, I know I've said this before and then we go away and we come back again, but the plan is right now that we will be back on a regular basis. Um, and as I say, it's slightly different. Like we've been going for five years now. We've talked a lot of 90s football. We're not done. This isn't a farewell speech or, or anything like that. But what we have done is chat a lot about a lot of subjects, um, whether it be myself, usually Joel Young and Matthew Christ, as well as a, a plethora of regulars we've had on the show. We've, we've covered a lot of subjects. So we are trying to tweak the format um, for this new series, I guess, or new era. Maybe it's Alive and Kick in 2.0. Um, wrestling, not there. Uh, but w- what we will try and do is have fuller episodes with not just the interviews in the middle, but with that guest, a part of the show, which will bring me on to today's show in just a second. Um, and new themes, new voices, new guests. We are. It's going to be a little bit different, but it's going to be great. And I'm looking forward to chatting more 90s. Um, nonsense with all the people that will join us and then uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it too obviously the the market is crowder more crowded i should say than it was five years ago when we first started as the original 1990s football podcast but we are back today and we are slightly we're gonna be slightly different going forward as i say so yeah do keep abreast of the twitter feed at ak90s for any news on that and stuff so thank you very much for the interaction in between as well Let's talk today's episode, though. Absolute banger of an episode to kick off this new era of Alive and Kicking. We are going to sit down with, well, a, a massive face from the 1990s. You know, no disrespect to any of the guys that have been on this podcast before because they've all been brilliant. But today's guest is, you know, he's, he's up the top. You know, we're talking about former England manager. Somebody who's renowned as being one of the greatest English footballers of all time. If you haven't guessed it from those two clues already, what if I throw in a former Swindon player manager? What if I throw in the man who's credited with starting the Chelsea revolution in the mid-90s? That's right. You must have got it by now. A guest today who's here for the whole show, not just a snippet in the middle. We are joined by none other than Glenn Hoddle, who is today's guest, where we will chat, amongst other things, the England, of course. We'll chat about that Chelsea revolution, the Swindon stuff, and load of more subjects anything we've got with glenn we will be chatting to and yeah so it's it's a great chat glenn is a great talker as you would have seen him um on tv as he's now in his role as a pundit he's got a new book out as well which um if you want to more with about that it's a plug during the show and a plug at the end as well but we'll get into that uh, for sure matthew christ also join us and a new sign in for the ivan kicking brand yes we wanted to do a full kind of proper signing that like they did the 90s you know sh- scarf above the head shirt maybe we don't do twitter videos because this is the 90s but he likes to keep his anonymity is that the right word <laughs> on twitter but landlord of twitter landlord of the football tavern ed chambers will has joined the crew and will be a regular voice going forward on alive and kicking but that's enough from me because that's kick off alive and kicking 2.0 new series new era with the one and the only glenn hoddle Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. 
If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast is back and we are back with a banger of an episode. So I'm not going to talk for too long. Let me first introduce my merry men. I haven't seen his face for a while. But he is an, he's a writer, he is an author, uh, and he's the host of the Brian McClare podcast, friend, Matthew Chris. How you doing, Matthew? Hello, stranger. Good to be back. Great to see your face as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, we're missing Joe Young today, but he'll be back very soon. But in his place, a shiny new signing for Alive and Kick-In. You may have seen the fastest growing football Twitter account there is out there at the moment, talk, talking about all different things, not just the 90s but getting involved. He's the landlord of the football tavern, Ed Chambers. Welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and for that, uh, for that welcome. I feel uh, I feel like a Ali Dyer-style substitute for uh, Joel this morning, but uh, thanks very much for having me. There you go. What more do you want from the football tavern than an Ali Dyer reference within the first Absolutely. seconds of his, of his name? But no, welcome to the show. Be a much a welcomed edition. We would have, we would have done like a big old Twitter video, but it's the nineties. We can't, you know, scarf above head is as Absolutely. far as we would go. But Absolutely, we uh, we may do that in due course. And, and joining us on today's first banger of a show, a diamond light of a show, if you want that of a clue. Here's the former England manager, former Chelsea manager, former Swindon player manager in our decade of the nineteen nineties, all round England ledge. Let's be honest. Glenn Hoddle, welcome to Alive and Kicking, sir. Hi guys, yeah, good to be here. How are you doing, Glenn? How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, good health, which is the main thing for all of us. Um, yeah, but I'm um, looking forward to uh, yeah, this week, sort of the book launch, really. That's, yeah, well, let's talk yeah. about that first, because that's the reason we're all here. You've got a brand new book out. So we're what we November, early November. So if we're talking Christmas wish lists, it's perfect timing for, for a Christmas gift for somebody who's a football fan. Of, I will be definitely be on my list. Oh, before we talk about the 90s and, and that period of your career, Glenn, I mean, what made you decide now to release a book, tell your story? What is it because of the, you know, the stuff that happened to you last year? Did it did that have a playing impact? Why, why bring out Playmaker for the Yeah, yeah it's, it's probably a lot to do with, yeah, what happened. I mean, it's interesting. You said a year ago, it's, it's three years ago. Was it really? Wow. Arrest, yeah. Um, I've been asked to do a book for so many years and I thought, no, I'm, not doing that and and then you know eventually yeah, this happening to you I thought well why not this um, what I'm gonna do is do some stuff that I want to do and in the end I thought yeah why not open it up and just go from my eyes from from my career a little bit and uh, right up to now and um, doing little things here and there documentary that we've done um, the mass singer yes another one on the list that I thought well actually let's do it for my grandchildren let's do yeah. it because I want to have a fun. I have uh, to say, Glenn, that you're, you're known in my house to my five-year-old as, as the, one of the Mars Singer people. So that's how long your legacy has stretched. So well I'm, done for I'm that. I'm now known as the clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought, let's have a go at that. And that's why, really, I thought, yeah, let's, let's do the book. Let's, let's just uh, go, go through my career and, um, and, and say, you know, say it from sort of my inner thoughts, really. But it was, it was very, um, it was quite good for me, actually, I've got to say talking about you know what happened and uh it's been parallel with a documentary that we're doing as well so it it i think in, i was ready three years later or two and a half years later i was ready to talk about it actually i was ready to open up about it and it has helped me to be honest it has helped me yeah. good stuff well that's out for it we'll put a link on on the description and we'll plug it again before we go but playmaker is is out now um glenn's autobiography um glenn but as we always do on on this show let's take you back to what we like to call the decade that changed football forever and you played a significant part of that decade as well so if we take you back it's the it's the early 90s you've you finished stuff with monaco i, I believe you were training with chelsea for a while how does glenn hoddle end up at swindon town that's what <laughs> Well, from, from Monte Carlo <laughs> to Swindon, yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, I don't know what the synergy is, but <laughs> it, it was it was a case. I, I'd come back from Monaco. I would have signed another contract at Monaco. They asked me to sign another two-year contract, but my knee was shot to bits. I had an infection in it. So I actually, ironically, came back to Chelsea to try and get fit. 
And they said I could work with the youth, with the youth team and do a bit of scouting. But I think Bobby Campbell was manager there, and he was he was half thinking, if you know what, if he gets fit, uh, we'll, we'll we'll put him in the squad. So, uh, but it, it was halfway through my re- rehab really, where Swindon out the blue just phoned me. Um, I'd had no coaching experience at all. It was literally go from a player trying to get back um, through this injury to a manager virtually overnight. Um, Peter Day was the secretary down at at, uh, Tottenham when I was a player. He was now the chief executive at Swindon and he just just called me out the blue. It was actually the day, my first game over two and a half years after this knee injury, I was due to play for Chelsea against Watford at Stamford Bridge. It was the very day I was just leaving the house, phone goes, I went and played the game, got through the game just with my knee and then went off to Swindon, yeah. How, how did they sell it to you? Because obviously, for those who don't remember, Swindon were meant to go up a couple of seasons before that. They went through financial yeah. struggles and, and things like that. They, they were a bit of a mess of a club at the time. There was impending relegation. How, what made you up for this, this? Obviously, you said you had no kind of coaching experience. What, yeah. what, what grabbed you for this, this chance? I, I think you go back to Monaco. Arsene Wenger had a chat with me one day and he, he sowed the seed in my mind. He said, look, Glenn, I think you'll be a good manager coach have you thought about it and at the time I said no but then with this knee it was almost like I was out for almost a season with this knee so I started to watch the game with a different set of eyes I started to watch as a coach what I would do what the opponents were doing so it's almost like an apprenticeship of, of, of coaching and management and, and it looked it was like another set of curtains being opened for me I looked at the game differently as you do as a player so I, I had that in my mind. I thought, yeah, actually, I'm going to go back to England. I'm going to try and get myself fit again. But it was time to come back. And it was just this, this opportunity. And I think, you know, when in life things come your way at a, at a certain time, then you have to take that opportunity or you, they bypass you. You don't take that decision. That's your free will. And it was just like the stars have aligned, really. This came out of the blue. I was thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to play play again with this knee although I did play for another four seasons um I hobbled about for four seasons if you like um but it was it just felt right it just felt right I wasn't quite sure to be honest when I said yes I wasn't quite sure where where Swindon were in the league even. yeah I didn't realize they were all from bottom and <laughs> until until we uh me and Johnny Gorman looked into it and uh, we thought, bloody hell, with eight games left, they could be going down. So <laughs> we had it on straight away. Uh, but it was literally one day I was, you know, this player and the next minute I'm manager of Swindon and I'm talking in front of players and it was a case of learning on the job. It really was. Something always interested with, with you and, and, and maybe that era is the, is the role of the player manager because it's something that, you seldom see in football now, um, yeah. maybe because the manager job has become even bigger than it was in 1991. How, how do you juggle that? And how do you think it's changed and, is, and why we don't see it in 2021? Yeah, again, it's it was about learning on the job on, on that as well. It wasn't just about being manager. It was a very delicate one. I think if, you, if you're a player manager at any era, you've got to be able to affect the team. You've got to, you cannot be taking the place of a a player, of of one of your players, you know, um, if you're just playing for the sake of prolonging your uh, your career, that's, that can't, you know, players will see through that pretty quickly. So I needed to be affecting the game of 90 minutes. And fortunately, I was, we played three at the back. I went back into sweeper position and it was a beautiful position for me to actually orchestrate my management skills on the pitch and be a player. So it was a hell of a test. It was a hell of a challenge for me. Um, but it was, it, was, it was delicately done. Johnny Gorman done a great job in the sense on match days he would, because I had to train as well. And I mean, it was absolutely exhausting training and then going off watching matches and scouting players. And oh my word, it was incredible. And when I look back, I think, you know, one I had a cardiac arrest, you know, so some of the things I was doing through my life, it was, it was very stressful, yeah. But it was good, I enjoyed it. And I look back at Swindon and I just smile, I absolutely smile every time I think of Swindon. We played some beautiful football, um, played a system that back then no one else played. 
and we got promotion as well. So it was winning football as well. So it was it was good, but it was it was quite um, it was quite challenging. I got to say, yeah. What did you do to turn it around? Because as you say, they they were you know looking doomed when you took over, but like within you know a season and a half, you and Johnny Gorman managed to turn it around, got them promoted via the playoffs. What yeah. what was it? I mean, and also for somebody who'd played at the very highest level, did you struggle to implement kind of your no, ideas to these sort you know of players? You know what, Ash, we had we had some bloody good players there. Yeah. You know, technically, uh, Mickey Hazard was already there. A guy called Ross McLaren, who was a really good midfield player, could play sweeper. If I wasn't fit, he'd go into midfield, but he'd play sweeper if I wasn't. And then I bought Johnny Moncur. Remember Johnny? Yeah. yeah. Before he went to West Ham. We had Kerslake, we had Bowden, we had Calderwoods, Martin Link. We had a fabulous technical side. And, and the teams found it hard to get the ball off us. They didn't know how to play against us for, for quite a long while. Um, there was a few people that Jim Smith, I remember at Derby, were the first team that caused us a slight problem one day. We thought, oh, hang on, we've got to, we've got to change our our shape a little bit, but um, it, they found it really hard to play. So we had really good technical players. Technically, that was as good a team I had. Um, funny enough, strangely enough, that, that that I managed, even when I went to Chelsea, Tottenham, technically, they were fantastic players. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was good fun. Something I always remember from that era, Glenn, and I'm sure you did, I'm a QPR fan. I remember we played Swindon in an FA Cup tie and they and the Sky had built it as uh, Ray Wilkins, who was at the club at the time, versus Glenn Hoddle because of your styles, because of the way that you've been England teammates. With that kind of pressure, that every game had, a, had to have a thing on it, like because Glenn Hoddle was in charge. Did that ever get to you early on or did you just all take it into your stride? Yeah, I, I didn't really concern myself on things like that. When you've been playing for England and uh, you've gone through the career that I've had, that pressure's already or always there for any game. So in, in in many ways, you cut off from that. It's the major thing is you know it, it, it's quite funny. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm in the media now, but it, it's quite strange because as soon as that whistle goes, all the pre-talk, everything as a player. You just want to get out there and play. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, there's a lot of stuff said before games and pressure. But, but as soon as that whistle goes, everything goes out the window. You're concentrating on your, on your job, on your game. You want to do your job well. You want to play well. And um, it, it does make me sort of smile because at the end of the day, I know what players are going through and they have to do that. You can't go onto a football pitch worrying about, you know, things that are, that, that are, that are off the pitch or whatever. You have to be totally focused. And I learned that at a very young age, to be honest. So that sort of thing never... What I, what I think it did, it elevated going to Swindon with my name and everything. I mean, Aussie, let's be fair, Aussie's a yeah, big man. True. He went off to Newcastle. Um, I think it elevated Swindon at the time. And it was the style of football that we were playing that people really enjoyed. And it was a lovely compliment. I remember years after, a lot of scouts, a lot of people in football came up to me and said, look, I used to want, I used to put my name down as if I'm watching a player there at Swindon or we were going to, because I wanted to go and watch you play. I wanted you to watch your team play. And I thought that was a lovely compliment. You know, it was like they were trying to sort of hear it. Well, where do you want to go this week? Who are we going to watch? And they, a lot of them said they were going to Swindon to, to watch us because they enjoyed the way we played, um, which I thought was, was, was a, you know, it's a high compliment when, when you've got scouts and experienced scouts saying that as, as, as we went through our time at Swindon and having got them promoted via the playoffs you know we're heading to 92 93 there's this shiny new Premier League that has been the first season of it and stuff Chelsea come calling I mean how you obviously you found it hard to turn them down was it just because it was that job or what made you leave Swindon at that point when you had been promoted you'd done this job What, what was it that the Chelsea swang it for you it was a tough call really it really was as I say, we were playing some smashing stuff. I was happy. I mean, it's a pattern of my career in many ways, management-wise. It really is. I was happy at Swindon. I wasn't looking to really move. I felt as if, yeah, the challenge of staying up uh, in the Premier League would be a massive challenge, but one that I was up for. And then suddenly you get this phone call out of the blue, uh, a little bit like it was going to Swindon. Um, 
a little bit like it was from Chelsea to England. I got this phone call out of the blue. I was happy at Chelsea. So that's the pattern that was happening. But when, when I just sat down one day and thought, look, if you want to be serious about this, if you want to go with longevity as a manager, your next step is a bigger club. Yeah. Um, although we're in the same league now, because Swindon had got up, it was, it was the next step for me. And my heart was saying, stay at Swindon. It really was. I was having a ball. I was having a great time. Um, but my head was saying, you've got to go to a bigger club. You've got to challenge yourself at a bigger club. And um, that was the decision, really. It was the next stepping stone to, to go on. Yeah. I'm just, just going to bring that, Gormack, Glenn, Gormack, sorry, Glenn. I was, I was going to say you mentioned being um, player manager at Swindon and the, the, it gave you that time to develop your career as a manager and, and then you obviously went on to Chelsea. I mean, you look at the modern game now and you, we, we said there's no there's no such thing as a player manager now. I'm just wondering, you know, what, what as a modern day manager, where, how you get those opportunities now? Because you can go into management. I mean, if you had your time again, you could go into a management like at Swindon or Chelsea you have a bad couple of months and that can be your, your managerial career ruined. I mean, you look at what happened to people like Gary Neville. Um, I just think it, it, it was a good, I think it was a good time to become a manager because you had that, that time and that patience with clubs yeah. like Swindon that, that weren't happy to just pull the trigger if things weren't going well. No, absolutely right. You know, and I still think to this day, in this day and age, it's uh, whether the manager, you know, you think is right at the time, you know, you deserve more than three months or whatever in a management job, in my opinion. But um, that's changed and that's that's the nature of football at the moment. But you're right, it was it was a time where, although we didn't start very well, the first couple of games, we did, I didn't get my first win as a manager until my fourth game and we were down the bottom. So we were right under the cosh, straight away, the pressure was on. Um, uh, who knows, you know, nowadays that I might have gone you know, been given the sack before it even started for us. But no, you had that little bit of a leeway, that cushion, um, definitely. I think that's the pressure, but also what comes with the pressure? I mean, it's interesting. You talk about a player manager back then. In some ways, you know, the infrastructure and the, the people that are around you, you probably would find it easier to play and manage in this era now mm. than you would do back then. Because I used to, have, I had, my first conversation was with the laundry lady. I'd have the, I'd have the, the groundsman in. I'd have the, you know, you had every single aspect to a football club. You were sort of, it was being run through you. It was a lovely learning curve to work with people and how to manage people. But that was tough to actually play and manage and then have all the other things. And then I was having to manage up to the board. And I, I put personal money into a player to buy a player at Swindon. Um, and, and, and loan the money to the club, which eventually I got back years later but that's how that's how it was back in the day and that's what we did you know you sacrifice quite a lot um but now nowadays if there was a player manager and i don't think there ever will be but i think it would be easier the infrastructure the amount of coaches that you've got around you the people that are going to take away a lot of the things that i had to do as a player manager are taken away so um it's it's food for thought you could argue that the likes of Klopp and Guardiola are pretty much everything but player managers. Right. You know, they're super coaches. They're, they're on the touchline half the time. They're almost on the pitch. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're essentially player managers in everything apart from playing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, you know, that's when you've got the 100% respect of your, of your players and, and, that, and you know what they're doing. You know, they, they, they know what they're doing. From the training ground, it's it's translated to the pitch, and those two particularly, you can see it takes a bit of time. Of course, it does, but they were given the time. They were actually given the time, where I think a lot of managers are not given that time. You can't just turn it round in three months or seventeen games. You have to have um, Conte's gone in at Tottenham at the moment in the middle of a season. Now that is very difficult yeah. to get all the things he wants across. Uh, even the training, the fitness, he wants to run them and he wants to get their fitness levels really high. That's a dangerous thing to do in the middle of a season. And I think Klopp actually had a problem when he first came into Liverpool. So you've got to protect that. Obviously, you need a pre-season to do that. So there's a lot of things there that, that managers want to get across, but they can't until it's the right time. And I think Klopp and Pep are a great example uh, of, of the work on the training ground then going onto the pitch, the signals, I've seen him, he's got this signal and he's got these, 
instructions. And when Pep's not happy with the way they're playing, you know, they go back to what they've been drilled on the training ground. And that's when you've got this connection with the manager on the side to a, to a team out there. Um, some teams look like they're just off the cuff. They're just hoping to get a result. And you can tell the difference. Going back to Chelsea, Glenn, I mean, I'm always fascinated because obviously you're credited and rightfully so with kind of almost beginning that crossover from Chelsea from bringing in the, the superstars, bringing that brand of football. But when you were appointed, was that your remit? What was what was your remit for Chelsea? Because at that point, Chelsea were pretty much a mid-table top flight side. It hadn't been that long since they were been in the second tier as well. What, what was your remit as going into Chelsea? Yeah, it was um, the remit. I think that's what they needed someone to identify the remit. Nobody, Ken Bates didn't sit me down and say X, Y, Z. But what I quickly understood was the club wasn't, the mentality of, the, of Chelsea wasn't at a Premier League level. The training, the training ground, the facilities. And I've got to say at the time, there was some good players there, but they weren't technically anywhere near as good as my Swindon players that I had. So I knew straight away, a lot of things had to change tactically, technically, improve the squad um, with, with players to come in. It was that was a tough, tough first year um, because the way I wanted to play as well, um, playing with three at the back, I wanted to continue that. We didn't quite have the right players at the time, so it was a real mishmash. And, and I think also that the the the, um, the mentality of the players wasn't pushed; they weren't pushed hard enough. It was too comfortable. They they stayed in hotels that were rubbish hotels. And mentally, the players felt that. Where suddenly I said, you know, I challenged Ken, Ken Bates with facilities down. There wasn't a bath there, a training ground. There wasn't even a bath. There wasn't a gym. It was, it was really dreadful, dreadful. No office for the manager. It was a, it was a horrendous uh, state at, at that time. So I knew that it just wasn't what results and what the fans wanted. And the way we were going to play and the tactics we were going to play and the individuals, there was this other psyche of the club that needed changing. And it was to put the players under more pressure by making things, everything better for them. So that they ended up thinking, this is a proper club. This is a club that's going somewhere. This is a manager that wants to take us somewhere and then start to attract better players to the club and improve slowly. You don't get that time nowadays. You're right, Ash, what you said. You know, to do all that at Chelsea at that time, if I had three months to do it, it would have never happened. We were second from bottom at Christmas in the first year. You know, I'd have been sacked. But Ken Bates actually phoned up and let me know that, that they were backing me, which sometimes you think, oh dear, it's the last of you You know what's coming next. But he was genuine on it. He said, no, you're our man. And we ended up 11th in the league and we ended up getting to the cup final. And, and getting into Europe because United, you know, beat us in on the. They won the treble, so it was. Uh, that was you could see the structure that had to be put in at Chelsea was quite incredible. And eventually, we got a gym put in there. Eventually, you know what? We had a couple of baths put in. It was. It was. You know, it was. I got an office there. The manager got an office. I was using a BT phone to make phone calls for. Two and a half million pounds round the towns. Then it was ridiculous. It was really, really. But that's that was Chelsea at that time. So what you're saying, a lot of Chelsea fans come up to me now and say, and when I was England manager, because I was happy at Chelsea. Um, it was only that England come calling, but they say, you know, they 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 do appreciate what I did, and that was the start of them changing to the Chelsea, which is there now. Obviously, it's a different story. Um, They've been really good up until I went to Tottenham as manager. When I went back to Tottenham, then all that went out the window. <laughs> but they're, they're okay now. They're back on board. Glenn, can I just uh, can I just jump in here at this point and just ask you about uh, the FA Cup final itself in, in 1994? Um, so you'd actually beaten Man United twice in the league that that season, um, one, one nil both times. So in, in the week leading up to the FA Cup final, did you sort of have a real belief that this was going to be Chelsea's year, that it was going to be the year that they were going to win a trophy for the first time since the early 70s? And how, how, did, how did you sort of prepare for that game with, with the players? Well, we knew we were playing an exceptional side. I think, if I'm right, did they, did they get the treble that year? 
I think it was the double. Double, double. yeah, they did the double, yeah. yeah. The double, yeah. But um, but we knew that they were, they were an exceptional side. We knew they were a better team than us. But as you rightly said, it was ironic that we'd beaten them twice that year, and yeah. Kevin Peacock had scored both goals up there at Old Trafford and and at the Bridge. Yeah. So we had something to hang on to. That was that was the, that was the psyche. That was the that was what we actually. That's why I think we went into the game in a real confident mood. And I, I, you probably won't remember this, but I'm speaking to Gavin about it. But halfway through, no, actually near near well, ten minutes from half time, and Gavin Peacock gets the ball in the edge of the box and he hits a thunderous shot. It beats Schmeichel, and it hits the bar and comes out. Uh-huh. And we would have gone in at half time one 0 up. Gavin Gavin again scoring. <laughs> you imagine what that. So only Chelsea fans will remember that probably. But that was how close we were to maybe doing it again. And then the second half, things went against us. There was a penalty, which was never a penalty in a million years, went against us. Um, and those things went, you know, then we had to open up a bit more. And we opened up and, and they were a great sign. They beat us 4-0. But yeah. at the end of the day, because they'd won the league, we ended up playing in the Cup Women's Cup. So Chelsea, from when I went there with a, a BT box and a no bars, no gym, the next year, I'm sort of pinching myself, and I think most Chelsea fans were pinching themselves when we're we're in the draw for the you know playing European football. So you could see the the change was so vast, so quickly. But we went into that game believing because we'd beat them twice, um, and and in any cup game, any final, you could you could. And I think if Gavin's ball goes in the back of the net, you know, decided to hit, hit the bar and come out. Um, that those think those moments are massive and particularly in big games. And I think we would have uh, perhaps been a, had a different story, but it was, a, it was a great achievement to go from where we were with the squad that we had to do that, to get to the final and then end up 11. As I say, we were second from bottom at Christmas and, um, you know, the, 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 the fans, Chelsea fans were a bit disgruntled, put it that way, uh, at that moment. And, and they decided to stick by me. And then Matthew Hardy in the following year sort of joined and got involved and um, who was Chelsea through and through. And then there was a bit more money to go and get, you know, the likes of Mark Hughes, Dan Petrescu, Rude Hullet. I mean, Rude Hullet was amazing to think. I think Chelsea fans, even to this day, thought, how, how on earth did we get Rude Hullet? Well, that was my next question, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, I was thinking that and I was the manager. <laughs> Um, on a free transfer as well. Rude was great. He was excellent. He really was. Not only as a player, but, you know, Rude, the, the, the Dutch have got this perception and yes, they are, they can be arrogant and they can, but they've got belief in themselves. Yeah. That's what I love about the way the Dutch play. Um, but Rude was really, really one of the lads. He really did, he, you know, he wasn't this superstar that was coming to this Chelsea. We kept him away from the training ground. <laughs> kept him away from Stamford Bridge. He wanted to see them. And then I said, no, there's building going on. So I took him down the King's Road for a meal. <laughs> Very good. Before he signed. Because I think if he'd, have seen, if he'd have seen the training ground at that time, that would have been it. That would have been it. So uh, I don't think he'd have come. But um, it was great because he was one of the boys. He really mixed in with the lads. He, I know for a fact that that squad that he joined He's still very close with some of the players, mates, they go out. Um, but he was one of them lads as well. He was a good lad. He understood He understood that sometimes I said to him, like, well, you rest, look after your knee, having a slight knee problem. So we had to make sure that he was uh, looked after training-wise. But then there was times when you had to be honest and straight with him in front of the players. And, and he was good as gold. He was good as gold. Um, Glenn, can I just um, can I just come in at that point and ask you about Rude actually? Because you you said there when once you started talking about Rude, you, you said he was a as a superstar, and we all we all know him as a superstar from you know Euro '88 and the World Cups and AC Milan and the like. How how did you keep um, a signing like that under wraps? Because Rude, as we say, Rude is a superstar. I mean, how yeah. how how did that signing come about? I suppose it's it's, it's interesting how he did keep it quiet actually. Um, we we heard on the grapevine that he was on a free transfer. We knew he had a slight dodgy knee, um, but it wasn't. He was still, I think, at, he was on loan to Sampdoria at the time from AC Milan. So I could see that he was still playing. 
And I wanted, and so I went across with, with Colin Hutchinson to, to uh, Milan to meet him. And we sat round a table in, in, in the director's room in Milan and we knew he was on a free transfer. That was up to Colin to, to sort out the finances. But the first and foremost, he wanted to talk about the football. He wanted to talk, he didn't know too much about Chelsea. He knew about me, but he didn't know much about Chelsea at the time. And, um, and I said how I wanted him to play a sweeper, you know, that I'd played, I, I'm, I was retiring, I'd retired. And, and I wanted to go with three at the back and play him a sweeper because I know I played against him, funny enough, for when he played for Fairnoid and he played a sweeper when he was a kid, when he was 19. So I, I saw his body language and he liked that. He liked the thought of that, playing sweeper and coming into midfield. And I explained what I'd want him to do and the things that I, actually the things I would have loved to have done with Rio Ferdinand for England never got the chance because that got cut short. But I could see him doing that and coming into midfield, being free, no one picking him up as a sweeper because I knew I played in there. You don't get picked up. Centre forwards won't track you back. So you end up, your best player on, on the ball, Rude, would end up in midfield with time and space and that's when you can hurt a team. So, you know, I gave him all this and we spoke about this for an hour. And you know what? It was probably one of the easiest deals I've ever done. Colin went away and spoke about the finances. He came back. He came over to, to Chelsea. And that was the moment I thought, we've got a chance here. Keep him away from the training ground. <laughs> <laughs> if you do that, we've got a chance. And, and he, he came and signed it. I mean, let's face it, he loved London as well. I think mm. he quite enjoyed the fact he was coming to London. But I, I, how we kept it quiet, I, I don't know. I really, Lack of social media, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, nowadays, got, you've got no chance. But you know what? I don't know if I say this in the book. I can't remember actually. Oh, oh. exclusive coming. Documentary. We put them. But we nearly got Burkamp as well. You know, oh. when I was in Milan, he was available, oh. but we didn't have the money. He was available. I think it was six and a half million, seven million. So you'd have thought. Oh, I was, and I said to Colin Hutchinson, "Give Batesy a ring and see if we can." Whilst we're out here, his, his agent, you know. Imagine if we'd have brought them to then, yeah. that would have been exciting, but we, they couldn't raise the money at that time. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we just missed out on uh, maybe getting Dennis as well. But no, Rude was fabulous and it, it elevated Chelsea and, and it was exciting times. And then, and it was off the back of a good, you know, getting to that cup finals. Of yeah. seconds done. Although we didn't win it, suddenly Chelsea felt, we felt, the players felt like they were Premier League players. The facilities were better. You know, the playing ground still wasn't great, but we stayed in better. You know, I was demanding more from them. You know, as a manager, you have to demand so much more and, and, and drag them sort of, it was a drag, it was dragging them up. And, and back then, you know, when we played in the, in, in the Cup Winners' Cup, we got to the semi-final. That, if you remember, that was a rule that you had to have in, eight English players. Yeah. Scottish, Welsh and Irish were classed as foreigners. So straight away, I had a Russian goalkeeper for start. Yeah. So it was like how we got to the semi-final was sometimes we only judged like in cups and medals and whatever. But some of them things that we were doing was, wow, it was, it, they, were, they were really good achievements from the players and, and then everyone, all the staff, all the people and Peter Shreves I took uh, to Chelsea was with me. You know, we had a really good work ethic. We, we and, and I think we improved the club and the team and, and it went on from there. Oh, we've got to talk England, Glenn, because the listeners will be dying to hear that um, as well. And obviously there's so many facets to your England career. I know we're pressed for time. So I want to firstly ask you, I mean, how do you follow Euro 96? Like the, the country is in, you know, the highest of highs with England at that point. Terry's gone when reluctantly, probably in fans' eyes. How how did you take that on? Because I think possibly that's the hard that was the hardest follow-up an England manager has had because oh, absolutely. I mean, we had a, a, a I mean for Terry it must have been a nightmare just for the we had a pre big massive press conference yeah. with both of us sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, this is tough for me, but for the England manager as well, it's even tougher. He wants to prepare his team and get, get on with the Euros. Um, they had a great smashing squad. But I'm thinking, you know, me and Terry, I knew Terry from, I was an under-21 player under him 
and he was a fantastic coach and I had so much respect for Terry. Um, but I knew it was, it, it was something that he really didn't need, if it, it, truth be known. But anyway, we're sitting there and I'm thinking, Cracky, this is, we've got a chance of winning this. We've got such a good side. Um, and I, I had to look at it as a fan, to be honest. That's how I approached it. I thought, I'm an England fan. I played for my country. It would be a massive difficulty taking over when a whole nation think, are thinking, well, why is the manager going if we'd won it? Um, but I, I was a fan and I'm thinking, well, they've made their decision. If we've won it, that's going to be great for me because I've, now we've got the fear factor. Now we yeah. can take it on to another level. But it would have been, you know, it would have been difficult as a new manager coming in without a doubt. And it was difficult anyway. Um, but um, there was only ifs and buts with what, what could have happened in the Euros. And it was almost like football was magnified again. And if you think back, it was it, it went back to another level, like it's probably never been. And it was the, it was the start of of um, football, sort of really uh, becoming a massive massive business in many ways. The Premier League was had just started, and it was just starting to flow and get the finances right. And so it was a wonderful time in many ways for football. So yeah, it was it was tough, but I knew the main thing for me watching the squad was a. Hey, You've got some bloody good players. Yeah, and you did, I, and, and you managed to like evolve the squad as well. Because I remember it was I remember your first games. I think it was Moldova. You brought David Beckham in, and then yeah. obviously later in you brought Michael Owen, Paul Scholes. How, oh. I mean, you had the kind of Euro '96 nucleus, and then you had this influx of. How I mean, how what was that like to manage this kind of what we well, eventually that, saw? That was the easy part. That was the lovely, wonderful part. You know, the football side of, of getting Alan Shearer and Teddy Shearer in them, and then getting Michael Owen. And, David Beckham, Scalzi, Rio Ferdinand, yeah. brought in the young, uh, young kid. Um, with all these experience, he was still in his peak. You know, we had uh, Gaza. We had, it, it was it was the blend of any manager you want the formula, a template of youth, good youth players, and experienced good players. And we had that. Yeah. We had that in abundance. And uh, you know, I was excited about that. I really was. And, 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 the boys give it everything in that World Cup, that Argentina, you know, getting there via Italy was was amazing. It was an amazing evening. But and the and the roller coaster of the Argentina game, you know, what could have been um with that group of players was, was quite exciting for me. That I always look at that image of you in Turin, and it's one of my happiest images of, of that era, just because you would literally celebrate, I think, how the country was celebrating. I'm not saying all managers don't, but we were all so happy that we managed to do it in such a hard game. What were the celebrations like last night? I mean, given that you had people like Wrighty and Gascoigne, I imagine the, the celebrations that night were, were one to remember as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that dressing room was uh, was rocking. It was rocking. Um, it, was, it was a wonderful feeling. And, and, and when you get results like that, you, you, as, an England, uh, as an England sort of setup, it's very difficult to get that team, that team feeling, that spirit of a team, uh, because you go away and you don't see the same players sometimes for three, four months. They come back and all that's gone. But when you that what that was one night where we'd qualified for the World Cup, the excitement it just bonded everyone. Everyone became so close. It was that moment where I felt, yeah, this is a collective. I felt like we were in a club side. Yeah. You know that that club. You get that club level, you, and and it's hard to get that international level. You can get it at a tournament because you're together, but. We hadn't experienced that, or I hadn't experienced that. Some of them players had, but um, I'd, I'd experienced it as a player, but not as a manager. So it was a lovely feeling. But the actual performance, going back, was they lost for about 17 games of there. Yeah. And it, was like, it was a bit like the film Gladiator. <laughs> it felt like it was 90,000 Italians and we were just thrown to the Lions. <laughs> but, um, but I tell you what, the boys... We controlled that many parts of that game and played it so well. We should have won it right here at the post. Yeah. And then that save, at the, uh, the miss at the end where everyone's heart was yeah. in their mouths. Yeah, yeah. Well, I write about that in the book. I won't talk to you about it now, but there's quite a poignant moment in the book about that, what happened. So, which relates to maybe something later in my life. So, it's that was some, when I look at it, that was a hell of a sort of a, a, a pinnacle or crossroads in, in many ways. For me, that game, it really was. But it was a fabulous way. And we'd beaten them in, we won the La Tournoi the year before. Yeah. 
and we'd beaten them, and we'd beaten them well. We'd beaten them well in in in, uh, in France, two 0 I think it was. But we'd, we'd we'd outclassed them. So I think we went into that game. We did go into that game. I know we did in a really confident way. Be it in Rome, where they hadn't been beaten for seventeen games. They had a great side, Zola and Maldini, etc. But it was a titanic performance. It really was to go away from home. And don't forget, this group of players, when I took over, they had had two years playing at Wembley. Yeah. Every friendly was at Wembley that Terry had had. Every, the tournament, every game was at Wembley. They never really experienced going away to Georgia or going away into Rome or to even Moldova. You know, away at, at Poland we had to go. They were tough games. And they hadn't experienced that for maybe probably three years, actually. Um, so yes, it was. It wasn't all. Um, it wasn't all. Uh, you know, pie in the sky, and it was easy. It was. It, it was some tough games we had to we had to get through, but we got there in the end. But um, that last game against Italy was wonderful, and, and the jumping up, I can see it now. The staff, everyone, yeah. it, it was fabulous. It really was fabulous. Yeah. On the flip side of that, and, and people would remiss of me if I didn't ask you about probably the two most controversial parts of, of your England career. Firstly, the omission of Gaza from that World Cup squad, which I can imagine, and I heard, I've heard you speak about it before, how hard that decision was, but talk to us about that. And also then, obviously, the ending of your England career, which for me, I always leaves a really sour taste in your mouth. I heard you speak to recently about it to somebody as well, about the, the, you know, the article in the Times from Matt Dickinson. I mean, how... Anno- annoying I suppose is it for you to look upon your English career and, and, and see those kind of two things always come up when I like to remember Turin I like to remember yeah. you know the World Cup the players you brought through but h- how do you feel that these were always brought I have always well, been brought up since the Gaza one the Gaza one the, the press didn't want to um, understand the real reasons yeah. they wanted a percept to spin a perception rather than the reality and, and the saddest thing was it was it was my saddest decision not my hardest decision um, to, to, to leave Gaza out because it, it was it was brewing a little bit. It had a knee and a calf problem all season, and I had to chat with him six months before about being fit. This is a World Cup coming up. We'd qualified, you know, get yourself fit. And he was at Middlesbrough at the time, and it, and he wasn't he wasn't hundred percent fit, not playing one week, and he was playing. And I thought, well, we 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 need him to get fit, and. Um, so going into the last games before the, I picked the squad, we went to Morocco to play in a tournament. And I thought, you know what, he's still got a slight problem. We'll, we'll leave him till the last game. So I gave him every opportunity. I wanted him to, I remember saying to him before the game, and this is in the book, you, I just want you to get through this game, Gaza. Just play two touch. Isn't, you haven't got to prove anything. Just want you, I wanted him to just get 90 minutes yeah. under his belt and we could get, you know. And unfortunately, he took on he took on the the big <laughs> I can see it now the big number six and he's coming and, and he's just caught him he's took him took him out and on his thigh and he had a hematoma which my staff the medical staff said look that's going to take two and a half weeks he's that let alone his knee and his calf and mentally there was a few things now I could have hidden behind that the mental side yeah. and the drink and all that but. I thought, no, I want him in the squad, but we gave him as much as we could, but I had to make that decision. And and he wasn't going to be fit way into the tournament. And I had to make that call, you know, and there was other players that, that uh, I felt, were young players like Scozy that um, that could cover that position. Um, so I had to make that tough, tough call. So that was, the, it was really through injury. And the yes. Place, he didn't want to listen to that. It was a bigger story, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course it was, but it was a tough decision. Not my toughest. My toughest was to let young kids go at Swindon when I first took over. Yeah. To release them, to tell them that their careers were over in many ways and getting them to break, you know, they were breaking down in front of me in my office. And I was only six months into management. And I thought, you know what? Wow, that is, you know, that was tough. That was tough. And after that experience, leaving a player out of a team or leaving a player out was a doddle after that. Yeah. So I always, I always took that as my barometer and thought, well, I'm never going to face anything as tough as that. But it was, the, it, I think Gaza's decision was was the saddest decision I had to make. And it was a part, there was, you know, the jigsaw that they wanted, people didn't understand was that I could see, I wanted him fit, you know, yeah. with him way before, you know, every time we got together, I'd sit him down and say, look, 
the 90 World Cup made you. So we're in another World Cup. This could be unbelievable for you. But I don't know at the time, that's the frustration of an England manager is you're only leasing the car, aren't you? They're not yours. They go back to their clubs. They come back to you. You have them for 10 days or a week and then they go back again. So you're not in control of what they're doing. And it was such a big moment going into a World Cup. It, it wasn't as if there were, well, there was nothing, you know, at the end of the season. There was a World Cup. So that's all them things were, were being tried to be put in place. And they're the things that actually, you know, happened. But people are not going to get to hear that. And the press certainly are not going to want to put that across. And... Um, yeah, that's how it was. So, yeah. uh, and, and you mentioned the press there. That obviously led to the, to the end of the England England role and, and that quote that you were misquoted. How did that feel? I mean, I always feel, feel like I said, it's a sour taste in my mouth. You didn't fulfil the potential that England team had just for off something that was off the field as well. I mean, do you still look back on it with a sour taste or is it something that you've learned to just deal with over the years? Oh, no, I, I, I've learned very... It took a, a little bit of time, but no... Listen, I'm somebody who I've got a spiritual belief anyway. So, you know, one of the hardest things for us to do is to forgive people or to, you know, in life in general. And I think that's the test. So I haven't got a bit of, you know, I'm, the frustration at the time, it was more frustration at the time because of the, like I said, the, the nucleus of the youth that I had. I had One of the frustrations examples I'll give you is I had an I, you know, I had this, this three at the back was something that was working so well with England, but... I had this young kid, Rio Ferdinand, who I knew was going to be... I mean, my last game, he was sensational at Wembley. We beat Czech Republic 2-0. Yeah. He kept coming. I said, I want you to come into midfield, break in, like I said, to Rude Willett, like I'd played it myself. Rio was spot on to do it. And we never, ever saw... Rio was a wonderful, one of our best ever defenders we've had. Rio would have been even twice as better playing in a three. He really would, because he was. He could have been allowed to go in midfield. In a back four, you can't do that. You can't leave your mate 1v1. So he could never really go and play. He was a great player with the ball, but he, he would have been sensational. He really would have done. And so that, that, was, that was very frustrating. And then you've got Michael, a young Michael Owen who announced himself to the world, you know, in the summer. You can see where I'm going. You've got Scotty, you've got Beckham, and then you Int still, Shearer still, Sheringham still. You know, it was it was it was something I felt we could have gone on and won that Euros. Um, because we lost the game at the beginning at Sweden away, which is always a tough one. If you look at the record, England never yes Sweden for a long time. Bogey team, yeah, yeah. So you know, there was still a lot of lot of football to be played. There was still seven games to be played. So there was this, I felt there was this rumbling behind the scenes to, to sort of shift me out anyway, if I'm really honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it was really frustrating, really frustrating to, you know, judge me by your football results. That's what managers should be judged. And that's what other countries do in many ways. And, and then at the time in this country, it, it, it wasn't quite like that. Well, something I wanted to ask you, Glade, is as England manager, I mean, you, as you said, we've talked about the plethora of talent that you had there. Was there anyone of that period you looked at and seriously looked at but never quite got an England cap? I'm, I'm intrigued to see. Um, trying to think now. That's, that's the one off the bat that I'd have to sit down and think <laughs> about that one. Um, the feeling you've got something in mind, Ash, have you? No, do you know is what? I haven't. Some... I, I probably should have. Yeah. Prepared. I probably should have prepared one, but it was just something that occurred to me. There was there was so much talent out there. I mean, I remember young Lee Hendry being capped just once. I mean, he was players yeah. like that who never really got a look in, and Glenn had such a, a you know array yeah. of talent. Yeah, we did have a um, particularly up front as well. Yeah. If you if you look at the players that I that I didn't take to the World Cup, or the players that really, I mean, Robbie Fowler. Yeah. It was it was hard. It, one of the best finishers we've seen. But for, for international football, you know, Shearer and Sheringham, and then suddenly Michael Owen, who had a totally different dimension to anyone else that we had. And then you've got players like Ian Wright. Don't forget that wonderful performance in Italy, yeah. Rome. Alan Shearer was, was out. He had a ligament operation. You know, Wright, he played up there on his own. Ian Wright. You had Les Ferdinand. You had, you know, Robbie Fowler, as I say, you had Andy Cole, you had uh, Stan Collymore had yeah. round about that time. He was on fire. But 
they were all up the top of the pitch. It was quite amazing, really. Um, uh, I bet Gareth would love to have a, a, a set of forwards up there at this moment in time. So, and then behind it, we had this midfield that had a lovely balance and, and a system, I think, that could have taken taken on even more with Rio playing it. Tony Adams played it really well, but he played. We played it more as a. But Rio could have took it on even more. Um, so yeah, that was that was frustrating. But as a, a player that sort of didn't get it was near and didn't get in. I can't remember who that would have been. I think you, did you have Lee Clark in your Latumwa squad? If I remember rightly, was he somebody who? Uh, no, Lee wasn't in it. No, that was that was like. I think you're thinking of Rob Lee. Oh yeah, maybe yeah. Rob, yeah. Lee, Rob did well in a lot of the games for us, but yeah. So we had a we had a real real uh, array of, of talent there. We really did. Um, Glenn, before we go and and wrap up, uh, Matthew, Ed, have you got anything you want to just quickly ask Glenn before we go? I haven't, and I think we better uh, <laughs> move on. <laughs> no, I think we've I think we've covered a lot, Ash, in yeah. a very short space of time. Yeah, you I think you don't want to be a single rendition. <laughs> well, we could, yeah. No, I think I think Glenn. I think what I would like to ask you to, to finish you on. I think you're somebody, and it's somebody I like to, to know on this book on this podcast who, who lived through you know very much high in the eighties and then the nineties. What? When did you notice the change? Because we call this the decade that changed football forever. What was the change for you in the nineties that like put football into that next level? I think we've touched on it a little bit. The Premier League, obviously, yeah. uh, what they did. I mean, football was on a trend going down, let's face it. It was on a trend down. Being out of Europe for five years during that time, uh, travel, the, you know, we were at our bo- a real sort of low ebb. And then, and then that turning into the Premier League, then making it come back into, you know, a curve that people started to come back to football. Um, and the breakaway that they had to do really in many ways from the Football League. Um, But keeping the promotion, of course. So I think that was massive for the game. But I think also 96, you've touched on it. You know, having that tournament back in England just elevated everyone, not just football fans, but the whole country. And yes, we nearly nearly won it. But I think we won anyway. We won it. We won out anyway because of the, 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 the vibe of football. And then suddenly this, where we were six years before that, maybe seven years before, it was this low, low graph. If you look at a graph, we were at the rock bottom. This suddenly went up where there yeah. was businesses, you know, businesses wanted to be involved in, in football. Um, rock stars wanted to be involved in football again, watching, you know, there was, there was this um, show business type of thing that got come back into, it was right, it was very quickly went straight back up to the, top of the charts, if you like. So, and I think that was a real poignant moment uh, for where we're at now, actually, in many ways. Yeah. Well, Glenn, thank you very much for your time. Playmaker is, is on your, it should be on everyone's Christmas list. As you see, there's so many stories you've already told us today. There's stuff in there that I'm sure we, we enjoy reading. Um, Glenn, thank you very much for, for joining us and looking back at the 90s. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, and have a, have a great day. Yeah, have... thank, thanks a lot, Glenn. Cheers. Bye-bye. Glenn Hoddle there, gents. How was how did how did you find that, Matthew? First of all, coming in, we'll we'll just finish off the show here by just sort of looking back at that. I mean, you could, I could talk to the bloke for hours, couldn't you? Yeah, and I thought we were going to, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> he's, one of, he's, he's one of those guys that um, you know you you got questions lined up, written down in your head, whatever, and and, yeah. and you know I get the feeling we barely scratched the surface. But I mean, yeah. it's never. It's not like pulling teeth chatting to Glenn, is it? Um, it's uh, it's an absolute joy, and the guy's got so much. So much to talk about. Um, it just goes, you know, uh, we can only imagine what the book's going to be like. It must be good because I was, you know, I was trying to get to England, obviously, but there's so much of England in that kind of two, not even two year period that you could go. You could do a book on that itself. I, I, you thought. Um, Ed, how did you how did you find Glenn? I know you've got some Chelsea roots in the tavern somewhere, but it's um, and a few regulars. What did, what did you find that? Yes, we have got a few uh, Chelsea supporters in the tavern. So I hope they, uh, hope they enjoyed uh, some of those uh, questions. As Matthew was sort of saying there, really, really that, we could have spoken to Glenn Hoddle all day and yeah. all night. And I think Glenn Hoddle probably would have spoken all yeah. day and all night, to be perfectly honest with you. He was, he was, you know, he was that friendly, that approachable. He's got so many different stories. He actually answered one of my main questions, which I'd love to ask people is the transfer that got away. Yes. And and he actually answered that. It was Dennis Bergkamp. Wow. I mean, <laughs> Dennis Bergkamp and Paul Furlong, the mind Dream. kind of boggles a little, a little bit. Um, but I just, I just thought that there was so much that, as Matthew was saying, 
we could have we just didn't scratch the surface but yeah. we still got so much information out of him it was it was it was really great to hear great to hear i mean you could tell with my voice the sort of 11 year old kid sort of going wow that was glenn hoddle but it, it was you know it, it was great to great to great to listen to him yeah yeah i think people might say why don't we go picking a little bit about you know the quote the eileen juriness but i feel yeah. like it's been done as well i oh, think like if yeah. you look hard enough he spoke about it a lot. I saw something on joe.co.uk, I think, on yeah. something on their Twitter feed yeah. the other day that he's talking about. And obviously it'll be in the book and the documentary as well. So if anyone's wondering why we didn't drill too hard on that, I think we were trying to get, as we always do on this show, the more nostalgic feel to Glenn Hoddle um, and, and and that era of, of the 1990s. Um, exactly. Actually, I just wanted to say there about the um, about the, the selection of the, the players for the World Cup and the fact that, You've heard so many stories over the years about players sort of saying, oh, you know, the way it was handled, you know, going in, it was almost like waiting to see your, your head teacher and whether you found out you were in a World Cup squad and all that sort of stuff. But the players that actually went to the World Cup, you don't really hear them complaining about it no. too much. It's, it's almost the players that didn't go that, that you, you hear from us. Obviously, the Gaza story is, you know, is, is up there. But, you know, the sort of the, the other five or six players have sort of mentioned it. But the players that did go sort of said, oh, yeah, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what we wanted, but well, they still went, didn't they? So, I mean, you know, it's not, you know, it's just, it's just so many things from his time of England. But listening there was really fascinating. I honestly do believe that if Glenn Hoddle would have stayed beyond that 98-99 kind of era, I think the 2002 World Cup would have been really interesting, I do. Yeah, I think yeah, it's a different decade, but... Yeah, you no, know, but I think, I, I think Euro 2000 would have been, you know, no disrespect yeah. to Kevin Keegan, but we know yeah. he lacked what? Glenn Huddle had in terms of tactical yeah. now. And, yeah, I think um, he was the perfect coach at the perfect time, but then it obviously the, the the quote what have you happened, but who knows what could have been, but that's for another day, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't matter anyway, because we're only talking about the 90s. Obviously. That's for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the only thing I didn't ask him and I had on my list, and it was going to be my last question, but we just ran out of time, is that whenever you speak to someone who played under Glenn, that, and you say, oh, who's the best player you, you've played with, blah, blah, blah. They normally they say Glenn Hoddle, like even yeah. though that they never actually played with him, yeah. that just on the training pitch, and it it yeah. always like just I'm, I love to have just been in his training session. How good the bloke must have been! And to be honest, Matthew, no, not trying to dig at you, but you're slightly older than us. You would have seen Glenn probably more as a player than me or Ed have. So was he as good as? I mean, I've seen the videos, I've seen the YouTube clips. Was he up there with with that with you know what these guys talk about? Yeah, he was. And the fact that people still, you know, of, of, of my age and, and probably some younger generation as well, but the fact that he's still held in such high esteem with, for people in their sort of 40s um, at a time when we were watching players like Maradona and uh, Ardiles and Brian Robson, you know, he, there was a lot of competition at the time. And the fact that Glenn Hoddle is still uh, talked about so highly just uh, just speaks volumes. And You've also got to remember, a lot of the time he was playing in the 80s, we didn't see a lot of him after he left Tottenham and went to uh, Europe. It wasn't like now where you could watch these games. I mean, I don't think there's, a, there's barely any footage of him yeah. playing uh, playing in, in Monaco that I know of. And you certainly didn't see it at the time. So, you know, for a lot of that, the end of that decade, we uh, we had to do without watching him. But I think those those years he spent at Tottenham um, would as, as sort of filled everyone's memory banks for, for life, really. And... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a shame we didn't get to see more of him playing on the continent because you know he would have uh, he would have played against some great players. No, Matthew, I would love to have seen him in his pomp. I think I've seen so many highlights of him for Spurs and even for Monaco and stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure you know as we say that many people talk of him as such a fantastic footballer. Um, before we go, guys, I mean anyone who's been listening to that, as I said, buy the book. I'm sure it's gonna, as you've heard from Glenn. I'm sure it's going to be a, a ridiculously brilliant read. Playmaker is out now. Uh, Matthew, if people want to follow you and talk to you on the Twitter, where can people go? They can follow me on Twitter at Matthew J. Christ, and it's the same on Instagram as well. And if I'm allowed to mention my other podcast, Life with Brian, the Brian McClare podcast, that is on Twitter as well, at Brian McClare pod. Yeah. Who's he've got coming up? Who's the next episode? Oh, am I allowed to uh, go on, say, I'll let you cheap plug it? Uh, we had Sanjeev Kohli on last week. We got David Gedge from the wedding present this week. And then coming up, hopefully, we got Neville Southall, Mark Hughes, oh. and plenty of other old, shocky mates that basically want to come along and uh, have a chat with us. 
I would say I'd love to come on the Mark Hughes one, but I don't think my professionalism would stop me from overcoming my QPR-ness with him. But I'm sure you won't need to talk about that section of his career anyway. Um, Mr. Ed Chambers, where if people haven't discovered you already on the social, what is the Twitter handle and what, what is your account all about? So the Twitter handle, Ash, is at uh, Tavern Football. Uh, everybody is welcome to join us at any stage. Um, I, just just quickly, just a quick plug. Um, set up the Tavern uh, last December during lockdown, having looked after my two kids all day and really, really fancied a pint and a chat with my mates. Uh, unfortunately, we were in lockdown at, at the time, so I thought, why not give this to go on Twitter? And I thought I'd get 150 people, and we're now over 3,500. So... Um, if anybody wants to join us, they are more than welcome. It's sort of nostalgia, story swapping, bit of modern day football. How much is it for a pint in the tavern? This day? <laughs> it is uh, absolutely free to you, Mr. Matthew Chris, because I listen to your podcast and I think it's brilliant. So there you go. Um, Trust so, you uh, to, to wonder about the prices. It's, it, always I mean, on it the might yeah. be London. Might be London. <laughs> we don't know where the tavern actually is, so it might be London prices. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, yes. leave, yeah. we'll, leave, we'll leave that. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much uh, for listening. I've been Ash Rose. This has been Alive and Kicking. Until next time, where we'll have another superstar guest from the decade that changed football forever. Keep it 90s. <laughs>